Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 35, and we're going to focus on the forerunners of the Zulu, the Mtetwa and Dwandwe, that Kwabe, and how they emerged in the region between the Tugela and Pongola rivers in northern KwaZulu-Natal, or what became known as Zululand. By the first few centuries AD, the migrations of farmers moving into the area between the Drakensberg, the Imzumkulu rivers south of modern Durban, and up to Ponderland took place. There had been a steady growth of farmers here until the first phase of the development of more powerful kingdoms. The second phase saw the people there divide into numbers of small patriarchal clans which lived alongside each other in relative peace, although there were many minor incidents. The third phase began with the rise of the Zulu kingdom by around 1810. I'll get to the third phase in future podcasts. The fourth phase, of course, was the arrival of the British traders from the Cape and from the sea. Oral tradition and the first reports by seafarers back up the fact that by the 1600s, these farmers were to be found all the way south virtually to the Buffalo River near East London. They spoke different languages, of course, although not too different. Oza and Zulu are quite similar. Many words are the same, and if you speak one, you understand the other. The cliques in Oza developed further as they lived alongside the Khoi in the south, whose language was dominated by the clique. So, patterns of social change in the Tugela area can't really be traced before the first half of the 18th century, when effects of conflicts taking place to the north of the river began to make themselves felt. From about the third quarter of the 18th century, chiefdoms such as the Tembe, Mabudu, Lamini, Ndwandwe and Mtetwa were beginning to expand in size and power. This area extended from beyond Deligoa Bay to the south of the Mfulosi River, and as they expanded, they began to clash with one another and with their smaller neighbours. What caused tension to rise has been debated by historians for many years, but there's no doubt that one of the more important points was the rapid expansion of trade in ivory to Delagoa Bay. But it's not just about control over ivory trade or the secondary effects of slaving going on in northern Mozambique. That's because the ivory trade actually slowed by 1790, just when the movement towards larger kingdoms began to rapidly accelerate. So clearly it's not just about the effect of European trade and the northern expansion of the Trek Boers. What was undoubtedly one of the causes of this social change lay in how the environment was changing. Political developments began to take place between the lower Mfalosi and Mplatuzi rivers. As I mentioned last episode, I grew up on the Mplatuzi river in a place called Nkwaleni. The Ndwandwe lived in the area around Nongoma in the 1780s and 90s, while to the south, between the modern town of Empangeni and straddling the black Omphalosi to the north, lived the Mtetwa. To their west lived the Kwabe, and those were the ancestors of the people I grew up with in the Inquilinu Valley on the Mplatuzi. That's the place I still call home, although these days I'm living in the big smoke of Johannesburg. From the 1770s onwards, the Mtetwa and Dwandwe in particular were beginning to expand their territories. The Kwabe responded by increasingly trying to dominate the smaller clans around them in the upper waters of the Mplatuzi, through Babanango on the western reaches, which is heading towards a place called Isantlwana. To the southeast, the Tuabe's area extended all the way from the Mplatuzi to the Tugela rivers and encompassed the Nkantla forest. By now, most South Africans have a pretty good idea where Nkantla forest is because there's an infamous compound at a town of the same name. So back to 1770. Other chieftains that expanded further up the Tugela at about that time were the Nyuswa, the Mkize, and the Tunu, although in the latter case, there is still some discussion. Inland, on the upper Mzinyati River, the Tlubi chieftain was also responding to the threat posed by the expanding Ndwandwe people. 
that Kwabe were flexing their muscles and dislodged a group of people called the Tuli from the upper Matukulu River, sending them southwards across the Tukela towards modern Durban. After bumping into a few coastal farming clans, they headed for the modern area of Pantown and Durban. Few people in South Africa these days have heard of the Kwabe, but I grew up with tales of their heroics pre-Zulu, and my young friends at Nkweleni heard the ancient stories. Archaeology once again has backed these up, along with genetic and other scientific methods. The Kwabe were not done. They began to build their influence around 50 kilometers inland and down the Mkomazi River in the south. A few younger men then hived off and headed further south to the Mzimkulu River, and inexorably even further down the coast to the Mzimvubu. And of course, they bumped into the Amampondo chiefdom you've heard about already, which was beginning to dominate the area of the lower Mzimvubu. All of this was happening mostly inland, off the coast, which is far hotter and more humid. The more powerful chieftains preferred living in the highlands of KwaZulu even then. The Kwabe pushed the Tele into the lower Tugela, regarded as less valuable land, for a number of reasons I'll get to in a moment. The Tele's ruling house settled on the Mvoti River, close to Kwadukuza, also known as Stanga, and took control of the coastlands as far south as the Tongaotumtloti area, which is just north of Durban. The Tuli and Kele Paramounties were much larger than any of the historically known chiefdoms that previously existed on the coastlands. We have very little evidence of these earlier people, although in the first few episodes I explained we are picking up cultural items and archaeological digs. It's just we don't have their oral tradition to explain some of the things being found. It's believed their influence probably extended beyond the Mzumkulu River, just as the influence of the expanding settlers to the south extended beyond their borders. The Tuli and Kele people would also have established some control over the Natal Midlands to the west, but these political groupings were fairly weak compared to the Mtetwa and Ndwandwe to the north. The latter were budding states, whereas the Tuli and Tele were more like loose aggregations of clans and chiefdoms. I need to describe the landscape in some detail here because it's crucial to understand why the Zulu and other people emerged. We are obviously products of our environment, and nowhere is that more obvious than Zululand. The social strength and resilience of these emerging kingdoms and the independence of their members had their origins in the particular qualities of the physical environment. Those laboring away in the highlands producing food, basic materials and instruments to provide for their people. Consequently, the links between the land and the people was intimate and direct. The understanding of the nature of this environment and its potential is key to understanding Zululand. The boundaries changed greatly during the coming years, but the core of the growing power of the Mtetwa and Dwandwe lay between the Pongola and Tugela river valleys in the north and south, and the valley of the Mzanyati river in the west. It's a region of high relief, rivers and streams that have cut deep valleys as they retreated westwards, leaving huge spurs of more resistant material jutting towards the sea. It's immensely beautiful, this land. There are five major river systems, including the Tugela, Mflatuzi, Mfulozi, Mkuzi, and Pongola. They are separated by high-lying ground at times, rising more than 1,000 meters above the adjacent river valley floors. The sides of the valleys are deeply incised by feeder streams, creating broken country that was to cause the British a great deal of trouble in the 1870s. The higher relief creates incredible variations in rainfall and temperature over short distances. It was a joke where I grew up. My valley in Kweleni lies at only 400 feet above sea level, although it's 40 kilometers inland. The town of Ishoi to the south is barely 12 kilometers away, and its altitude is over 1,100 feet, and it faces the Indian Ocean. 
It would be raining in Ishowe, but as I headed north down the road into the valley, the rain would just disappear. The vegetation changes from misty forest to bristling aloe and scrubby bush, literally within two kilometers. Needless to say, this causes local farmers of whatever race to be rather cynical of weather reports. So the coastal area is hot and subtropical, while in the highlands it's far more temperate with warm wet summers and cold dry winters. The valleys on the leeward side are even more dry, covered with succulents. Rain-bearing winds blow in off the Indian Ocean and deposit over 1,000 millimetres of rain a year on this coast, but this decreases as the distance from the sea increases. And even more confusingly, it doesn't decrease uniformly as my little explanation about Ushori and Enkweleni outlines. This windward side versus rain shadow side landscape means valleys like Enkweleni receive less than 600 millimetres of rain. So that means different vegetation, which has been historically influenced by humans for more than 1,500 years. Before the first farmers arrived in the early period AD, the region was heavily forested, according to botanical research. There was dense bush and forest on the coastal lowlands. Further northeast, the rain shadow around the Lobombo range led to savanna, scattered trees with grass growing about. Fire, the use of iron hose and axes wheeled by humans, all altered this landscape long before colonialism. Grazing patterns of cattle and sheep for more than 1,500 years altered the vegetation as well. The forest withdrew to the crests of high ridges and the bush grew thick on only the wettest slopes and in the watercourses, the river valleys along the streams. This left coastal grasslands. By the time of the Mtetwa and Dwandwe people, the region's vegetation was mixed. Because the fever-ridden forests of the coast had been cut down, the rainfall decreased and the bush was reduced, leading to grassy areas well suited to human occupation around the water, of course. The only really destructive disease right now was being transmitted by ticks, which lived in the grasses, and eventually Nguni cattle became immune to tick bite fever. The river valleys penetrate far into the interior with varying rainfall, a wide temperature range, and a former savanna known in Zulu as Ntlanzi. This encompasses thornfelt, lowfelt, and bushfelt. The grasses under the thorn trees are sweet. They provide nutrition and are palatable through the dry winter. It's the dry winter in most of Africa that makes stock keeping so hazardous. The grass deteriorates and loses its condition. And if the spring rains are late, stock losses can be sudden and high. In sweetfelt regions, the grass retains its quality and cattle thrive. Most sweetfelt in southern Africa prior to colonial times tended to be infested with tsetse flower belts or were in regions where there was not enough surface water to support high-density stock. But this was not true in Zululand. Tsetse fly was confined to the borders of the country and the deepest river valleys. The Mtetwa and Ndwandwe were in prime country, full of sweet felt and watered by numerous streams and rivers rising in the hills and mountain ranges. Zululand does have areas of sourfelt at the same time, both close to the coast and high inland in those areas that were covered by forests and bush once upon a time. Between these two extremes are belts of mixed felt, an intermediate type of felt that can be profitably grazed for around six months of the year. The reason for all this detail will become more apparent as we tell the story of the people here. This different type of grazing over a relatively small area made Zululand an ideal region for stock farming. As long as the herders can move their cattle freely to take advantage of the spring grazing in the high country and then the sweet grasses of the valley sides in winter, they're in business. 
The pre-Zulu farmer here planted sorghum, millet and then maize by the end of the 18th century. As you know by now, maize, or mealies as we call it, was the most important food innovation to hit southern Africa between 500 AD and modern times. I cannot stress just how important this little mealy is to the history of our land. It's still the main food. It's fed to millionaires at braais or barbecues, chisanyama. It's deeply embedded in our consciousness as South Africans for a reason. This doesn't matter what race you are, what language you speak, what vegetable you prefer. Mealies, which we call pup, is life, I guess. For those who think this is overstating, let's quickly remind ourselves about its superiority. It's high yielding compared to other grains. It requires far less labor to produce. It's resistant to most birds. It doesn't need to be winnowed and threshed like wheat. It's turned into cereals and porridge. It's dried and can be reconstituted when on the move. It can be thrown onto a fire or ground down and mixed with fats and dairy products. Thus endeth the ode to the mealy. People in this region also produced most of the materials essential to their way of life. Clothing was made from hides of slaughtered cattle. Cooking receptacles were made from clay. Crockery was woven grass and worked wood. Iron for weapons and agricultural goods was mined, smelted and forged within the country. Then later imported iron was traded and continued to be smelted and forged. The region was particularly well suited to the needs of pre-colonial farmers. It lay between tropical and temperate regions. It's fertile. It does not have debilitating diseases, unlike the tropics. And if some have said, perhaps, it was unrivaled in southern Africa as inducive to human habitation at that time. While singing the praises, let us not forget that the environment was being changed by a prolonged activity of man and woman. 1,500 years is a long time of cutting forests down and grazing animals. The environment was beginning to degenerate 250 years ago. This is quite sobering, I'm sure you'll agree. If you've ever driven through northern KwaZulu-Natal these days, you'll see the dongas or ravines ripped into the landscape, erosion caused by overgrazing. Things could be the same in 1790. Sweetfelt is particularly vulnerable to this sort of exploitation. What happened is that over time, people of southeastern Africa learned how long-term ecological equilibrium with the environment worked in their favor. The problem for these societies was that the new chiefdoms, the Mtetwa and Ndwandwe, and the growth of population because of maize began to change this equilibrium. They were approaching the limits of exploitation of the environment. When the forests are converted and the grasses chewed, when the arable land is used up, then a struggle ensues. This is one theory of what happened in northern KwaZulu-Natal that led to the centralization of power in the Tlaabe, the Tlubi, Tele, Mtetwa and Dwandre, and ultimately the Zulu. As the struggle for dominance grew at the end of the 18th century, it corresponded with the expansion of the major groups like the Mtetwa, Mdwandre, the Tlaabe, then later the Zulu, into a variety of grazing types. But as historian Jeff Guy points out in his work called The Destruction of the Zulu Kingdom, the organization of how people lived their lives during these times points to a rapid change in how they altered their day-to-day activities. Life here at the end of the 1700s and early 1800s was dominated by tens of thousands of homesteads or imizi which were scattered over the hills and ridges of the country. These were homesteads of the common man and woman, a circle of huts around a cattle kraal. The homestead head was usually male and known as the umnumzan. Living with him were two or three wives and children. The homestead was pretty much self-sufficient and the inhabitants of these settlements lived off their own production of cereals, dairy and meat. 
Individuals talented in specific areas would be the artisans. As a child, I would walk into the mountains to watch the Nyanga and other men forging metal, for example, which always looked like magic. A youngster would squeeze a leather bellows while the expert metal worker would hammer away at the length of iron he was turning into a tool or a weapon. I only realized much later that this magical production of the Ikwa and other spears had been going on for over 1,000 years. The Iron Age had come to Zululand long, long ago. The day-to-day labor in these homesteads provided the chief with his power as they managed to be both subsistence and surplus farmers. 90% of people living between the Mzumvubu and Pongola rivers lived like this, and others resided in the larger settlements where the chiefs lived. The chiefs would exercise authority over the homesteads, over the Mnumzan, and extract surplus food and products from them. This unified the groups politically. The royal homesteads, or Amakanda, were part of this production process and would house the barracks of the Amabuto. Relatives of the chief and retainers were also to be found in the Amakanda. This is where we need to fix the misconception about what Shaka created and innovated. The concept of gathering men and women into Amabuto age sets predates Shaka. So too, the support by these groups of the chiefs and the king's military and trade ambitions. There has been a tendency to ascribe these features of Zulu society as innovations Shaka created emanating from his own brilliant mind, but that's false. Another false narrative is the belief that in this era, the men were not allowed to have sex with a woman until they killed an opponent in combat, the washing of the spears. That's erroneous and somewhat Freudian. Sexual relations often took place long before marriage, although often not full penetration. We'll get to specifics of sex in later podcasts. Marriage for the Ndwandwe and Tetra and others meant more than just taking a wife. A man left his father's homestead when he married and moved to a new piece of open land where he established a new community served by tracts of arable and grazing land. He had his own cattle, but it is true that by the latter part of the 18th century, the chiefs of the Mtetwa and Dwanwe Kwabe, amongst others, controlled marriage through a military system. By this simple fact, chiefs controlled the main social processes of life, production and reproduction. What began to develop simultaneously was a delay in marriage for women which reduced their fertile span and reduced the rate of population growth. So the chief had a significant control over the rate at which these communities were formed and the rate at which their populations grew. This had a positive effect on the rate at which the environment was being exploited. A study of the physical environment in Zululand shows there were definite limits to the productive capacity of the region and these limits were reached by the end of the 18th century. With that, we end our analysis of Zululand in the last quarter of the 1700s. Next episode, we'll return to Tkozaland where Paolo had died in 1775, leaving two sons who were to begin to contest the leadership of the Koza. This was going on at the same time as the Dutch livestock farmers, the Trekboers, were beginning to increase their presence into the northern and eastern Cape. These two peoples had been living cheek by jowl for a few decades, when in 1779 Willem Prinsler, who lived on the Fish River, decided to shoot a Tosa man for stealing a sheep. This was after some years of tension had built up over what was really a complete misunderstanding. The Dutch never seemed to grasp the fact that while they negotiated land rights with the local Tosa chiefs, these men had no authority to bind anyone to land agreements. That was exclusively the right of the king of the Amatosa. The Dutch never understood the complexities of Tosa political power. They never grasped its depth and would time and again wax indignant about Tosa treachery, as John Laban points out in his book, 
land wars. Of course, some of the less important chiefs were also playing fast and loose with the settlers. Nor would the British do any better, as you'll hear. The supreme chief of the Amakosa granted permission for land use, not the little local chief, and that fact was something the British constantly failed to comprehend or just didn't want to. More pointedly, the Europeans who arrived were steeped in the tradition of negotiating land rights with what they presumed were the local owners. Not only was land parceled out by the king of the Amakosa, but he also ran water rights. The disagreements would eventually lead to a 100-year war between the Amakosa and the settlers. With that thought, it's time to end for this episode. If you have any thoughts or want to make contact for any reason, you can send an email through the website desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, salagatli. Thank you.